Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is Wednesday, September 28th, live from my apartment in his attic. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. I am DJ Nate, filling in for the one and only Dr. D. Today on the show, we have legendary Chicago journalist Monroe Anderson and retired anchorman and TV reporter Derek Blakely. And now, your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Power Play Wednesday, and here's why. Because I'll tell you why. Therese Ma, State Representative Therese Ma, uh, from a South Loop district, a Chinatown district, pulled a power play. And I say, here, here. Monroe Anderson is standing by, ready to come on. He's he's thinking about this. Does he say here, here? We'll find out if he's. I say here, here. Now I'm gonna condense what. The story, ladies and gentlemen, because a lot of you outside of Chicago won't care about the specifics, but you will care about the principle at stake here. So here are the specifics. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and her Board of Education are proposing to build a new school in the South Loop. All right. They're proposing to build it on land uh, that is owned by the Chicago Housing Authority, which is the chief public housing authority in the city of Chicago. It is land that was supposedly dedicated for the construction of low-income housing, which Chicago desperately needs, unless... Chicago is dedicated to the notion that it's better off moving poor people out of Chicago. So if you're dedicated to the notion that we need housing for people, uh, we should provide housing for people who need housing, then this land should be used uh, for housing. If you're dedicated to the notion that the long-term interests of Chicago are best served by moving poor people out, which nobody will ever say in the city of Chicago. Monroe Anderson knows what I'm talking about. No one will ever come out and say, oh, I think it'd be good public policy to move poor people out of the city of Chicago. No, they'll never say that. But instead, what they'll do is they'll take land that's supposed to be used for low-income housing, follow me, folks, and they'll turn it over to something else. We just, we talked about this last week. They turned over land uh, that's supposed to be for public housing for a soccer facility for the Chicago Fire. Now they're turning over land in the South Loop that's supposed to be uh, for public housing for uh, a new high school. Therese Ma used to support that high school, the state representative, Therese Ma, but having studied uh, all the issues at play, having listened to constituents, having gone to meetings, she's come against it and she's using her clout in Springfield to block the $50 million that the city and the board of ed needs from the state to build the high school. That my friends is a power play and I welcome it. And I'll tell you this right now, Monroe Anderson is listening to me. We're going to bring on Derek Blakely, his dear friend, an old Chicago news guy. We'll be talking about this as well. I cannot recall any state rep doing anything remotely like this during the days of Richard M. Daly, during the days of Rahm Emanuel. They were quaking in their boots with those mayors. <laughs> I'm scared. <laughs> the only guys who ever spoke out against those uh, mayors were people like me and Monroe. <laughs> people on the margins, so to speak. Everybody else, I'm scared. So I welcome 
the new uh, voices of democracy here in the city of Chicago. I welcome a little resistance. I welcome powerful people forcing the mayor to reconsider what she's up to. I just cannot help myself but to point out, where was this independent thinking during the days of Rahm and Daly? This is where it was, under the table hiding. Come on out, guys. You can join me in Monroe. It's safe. They won't fight. I'm scared. Anyway, Monroe Anderson, welcome back to the show, young man. I know. You know what I'm talking about, Monroe. They, they, they do bite. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and they bite hard. They don't, they, don't, they don't do one of those love uh, nibbles. I know. <laughs> they bite hard. I know. I remember in early days in the 90s, uh, Daly's press secretary calling the reader, hey, this guy's out of hand. God bless the reader, man. The various editors said, write a letter. You don't like what he wrote? Write a letter. I love that response. Write a letter. Uh, Monroe, before we go further into politics, we're going to hold off a discussion on uh, that till Derek joins us. Derek Blake will be joining us in about uh, 10 minutes or so. Uh, I just, folks, I have to share this with you. Uh, I told Monroe I was going to do this. Uh, so I'm just going to do it. Okay, so this weekend, follow me. I'm going to set it up. I'm driving in the car, and I hear the song Fantasy come on the old, old people radio station. A song from 1977, 78. Uh, by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Haven't heard it in years. I absolutely love that song, ladies and gentlemen. I heard it. I was like, oh, my God, it brought me back. It was like boomer, boomer nostalgic, right there, nostalgia, right there in the car. I went home. I put the album. It's from an album called All in All, which came out in 77. I just love that album to death. I started playing. I'm like, how come I don't listen to this album more often? I love this song. I love this music. I'm just really curious about the history of it. So I go to uh, Google, I, I look up uh, all in all, and up pops the Wikipedia article. And I'm reading this uh, learned article about the background of Earth, Wind, and Fire when they made the album and, you know, the different musicians who played on the album, the different kind of uh, musical styles that affected the album. And then they get to the section where they talk about the reaction. And there's a re uh, article, a critic from Rolling Stone uh, denouncing it, oh, it's not that good. It's like King Crimson or something like that. And then, folks, almost fell out of my chair. What do I see? Quoted in the Wikipedia article from a 1978 review in the Chicago Tribune by one, yes, one, Monroe Anderson. I immediately emailed it to Monroe, called him, Monroe, you're, <laughs> you're in Wikipedia. Monroe, you don't even remember writing the article. Is that correct? That's right. And and just like you discussed, you discovered that I was at Wikipedia uh, about a month ago or something. Joyce Owens, my wife. Wait, hold on. Is that the same Joyce Owens who uh, always has something to say when I talk to her on the phone, but will never say it on the microphone? Is that the I same Joyce? Right. Okay, I just wanted exactly. to establish and, that. Okay, go ahead. And, and frequently has things to say while we're talking. <laughs> she's <gonna text> me. <laughs> Telling me what I should say on your show. Yeah, but never come on herself. That I just wanted to make sure it was that joy. Uh, that world-famous, uh, excellent artist, by the way. I've been begging her for years to come on the show to talk about her art. But anyway, Monroe, I digress. Go ahead. Anyway, she discovered about a month ago that I was on C-SPAN. And so she goes, you're on C-SPAN. I said, yeah, I know. I was there. <laughs> I'm on twice. 
uh, a recent C-SPAN or a older C-SPAN? No, one was um, in 88 when I was Sawyer's press secretary. I, we, we, we met at uh, D.C. City Hall for some, some mayor's uh, and um, I introduced Sawyer there. And then the other time was maybe four years ago when we were discussing Harold Washington. This guy had written a book about Harold and at the Tribune's um, book fair that they have, I was on a panel with um, Jackie Grimshaw and um, the author who I forget. So Monroe, but go back. I got to get back to Earth, Wind, and Fire with okay, you for a moment here. Let's just get back. You know, you and I both love Earth, Wind, and Fire tremendously, uh, yes. and I do believe they should make a, a holiday out of September twenty twenty one because that's their huge hit that gets played all the time. You know, which they picked randomly. It means nothing to them. I know. Yeah. I, but actually, I did not know that. There's no significance yeah. to that day. I did not know that that it was random. Yeah, no, there's no significance. They just they just. It felt right when they mentioned it. They went through other dates, but there's nothing. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything except for what they'd written and what they were saying. It just felt like a date. Yeah, it was perfect. Well, they uh, Dylan is like this a lot. In fact, I want to do a whole show about uh, Bob Dylan and Pharaoh Sanders. Uh, and we got to bring Charles Ellison on to talk about it. Because sometimes I think Dylan with lyrics just puts lyrics out there that just they mess with your mind. They have no meaning. And then everybody's listening, like all is the fans, not everybody, but his fans are listening. It's trying to figure out what could the deeper meaning be. And he's just messing you with messing with you. And I think some great musicians like Pharaoh Sanders and stuff, like they go on these these riffs. Like, where are you going with that thing? And Probably they're just like I'm just messing with you, you know. I'm just right. Now we 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 should try to get my friend Sterling Plump, the poet, on because he 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 really pays attention to that stuff. Last time I saw him a few years back, he was talking about Jimi Hendrix, and he's going, he is really literary. <laughs> oh, he is. Yeah, <laughs> he's really literary. He hadn't paid any any attention to. to Hendrix, because um, back in the day, Hendrix was a little bit too much on the white side. Well, let's talk about that. Okay. Let, uh, all right. Now we're in a tangent. Well, I want to get back to that. I do want to get back to that. We got a plenty of political stuff to talk, ladies and gentlemen, but I do want to talk about that. Uh, so twenty four. just to finish up the one conversation. So they just, they probably just threw out uh, the 21st of September because they liked how the flow went. It like it had good meter. You know what I mean? So that's probably why they did it. Uh, not that Dylan was the same way. He said, ah, it rhymed. That's why I did it. It rhymed. Anyway. Um, but back in the day, and you could see this in this review, there were, uh, white music and black music. Well, black in the day. I, I don't know if it's still that way today. Cause I don't listen to poppy music and the confines were so rigid. Folks didn't even, I mean, it's, I think people understood what was going on Monroe at the time, but a lot of people, I don't think understood it. So therefore in the same essay in Wikipedia about all in all, they quote you, you're favorable. They quote the guy from Rolling Stone, he's not favorable. I don't even think the guy from Rolling Stone probably realized that he was in this confine. Because, I mean, in retrospect, all in all, is a tr- 
great pop album. So right. what was his what was his criticism of it? Did he have a specific? He thought the, the lines were corny. You know, uh, like uh, <laughs> if you guys are you know, some of the, those dumbass lines in Acid Rock. Have you ever listened to Inagata Devita Rolling Stone? You know what I'm saying? But it's like. Uh, I heard a lot of people would tell me that about Stevie Wonder because I was I was in love with Stevie Wonder and they go his lyrics. Yeah, no, they. I, I, I read that Stevie Wonder was a terrible lyric writer. I can't remember, but yeah, they said his lyrics were terrible. Well, that's absolutely ridiculous. The guy's a genius. His he's yeah, a poet. No, he, listen, li, li, uh, living for the city is a great example of how good he is. Oh my, yeah, that's. I mean, that's a, that's like a whole. A story. I mean, that's like a a, a, a TV show or a movie in a, in a song. But uh, anyway, I, so uh, and while we're on this, let me tell tell you something. I I, I used um, I used a song, Havana Moon. Oh, the Chuck Berry song. My, yeah, the Chuck Berry for my journalism class. I would play it for the students saying that when you write a story, a feature, you need a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it tells a story. And I would play this for them and then point out the beginning, the middle, and the end because it's short. It was only three minutes or less. Uh, of course, because these were um, millennials, <laughs> they didn't give a damn about Chuck Berry whatsoever. But I, I think that is really... In the lyrics to that song, you get a complete story. Oh yeah, in a very brief time. Yeah, no, it's Havana Moon. Uh, it, there was a song by Steely Dan called "Haitian Divorce," which is very similar. It, a whole story about a couple, a, a relationship, etc. and so forth. Uh, and then I, I'm pretty sure Santana covered Havana Moon uh, as well. Uh, and uh, anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, so yeah, back in back I mean the confines. Uh, that people had in terms of what was white music and black music, really bizarre, Monroe. You know what I'm saying? It just like it was. It's just so hard in this country to get anybody just to break out of. Well, be, well, back then the problem was that the Beatles was the gold standard for rock and roll, and so anything that wasn't Beatlesque. Uh, was not considered to be much of anything in comparison. I think I think uh, I was in college when the Beatles were really big when they came out with uh, uh, Yellow Submarine, etc. And it was like God had come down to earth and was hanging out. With, with the college students. I mean, I, I was at Indiana University, and in the dorm, you could you, you, you could just walk down the halls and hear the Beatles coming out of dorm rooms. And it was on record press. So it wasn't the same song. It was, I mean, and, and that's how they were. It, and it pissed me off because I was a Motown person. Okay, so there we go. Let's get at it. Let, let's, let's get at it. See, so did you have, okay, so picture this, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about late 60s, Monroe Anderson, who was 18 years old, looked like he was about eight. In fact, when I met Monroe, he was in his 20s. He still looked like he was about eight. But uh, <laughs> did you have like a knee-jerk uh, sort of 
disdain for the Beatles because you felt they were getting too much attention because they were a white band? Not, not disdain. I just thought they were overrated because I was, I was listening to Motown and I was listening to Pharaoh Sanders and, and Coltrane. Uh, I, I was just listening to a, a different group of music and the Beatles, I, it's same for the Rolling Stones, except I, as a high schooler, I really love Satisfaction. Okay. But that was okay. a personal preference because I couldn't get no satisfaction in high school. <laughs> yeah, poor Monroe Anderson in Gary, Indiana. Where's my satisfaction? <laughs> I tried. Okay, I tried. And I tried. Not, and I tried. not like young Derek Blakely in the city of Chicago. That's a whole different story. Uh, before we... uh, pretty much the same story. Okay. <laughs> we, he came on early, ladies and gentlemen. I just saw him pop up, and I had a very same story, in fact. Uh, Derek Blakely, uh, legendary Chicago newsman, uh, was very nice to join us today. Old friend of Monroe's, uh, and uh, I told Derek. Uh, it, okay, it, my... and let me, let me correct you. What Derek was early in his career. A, an, uh, an an international correspondent for CBS. He's based out of London. I I did not know that until yesterday, where Derek told me uh, he was a uh, international correspondent. I know him as a Chicago newsman, uh, and uh, I was corrected yesterday. I'm corrected today, uh, and um, uh, but uh, anyway, I told Derek. So he's a newsman. He's used to rigid time uh, slots and getting hitting your time on the button, and that's how news operations work, Monroe. So I said, "Well, we'll probably reach out to you about one thirty, quarter to two. And he comes back, "Well, which one is it going to be, one thirty or quarter to two? I'm like, "Oh, you're not used to Monroe Anderson on the Ben Jarofsky show. It's like a ship sailing at sea. Well, I think we're going to get to it sooner or later." Anyway, uh, we're trying our best to be on time, Derek, in honor of you. Uh, I also told you we should probably still be talking music when you uh, joined us as opposed to the political end of this. Uh, so Monroe was right in the middle of a discourse. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, where I was just to, to bring you up to speed. I was reading these uh, reviews of this Earth, Wind and Fire album uh, where Monroe was uh, quoted. It was on Wikipedia. Monroe was quoted, uh, very favorable. And a critic for Rolling Stone was quoted, and he was not so favorable. And we were talking about the different attitudes that whites and blacks in that era, 60s, 70s, had to music, like little confines. It was really hard to break out of a confine uh, that you were put in, uh, Derek Blakely, if you get what I'm saying. Like white music, that was for white people, and black music was for black people. Very difficult for my beloved baby boomers to break out of that. And they a lot of times they didn't even know they were in that. You know what I'm saying, Derek? They just... Well, yeah. You know, the industry um, you know, created those cubby holes. Uh, and uh, radio reinforced it. Um, actually, it, you know, because from the early days, even in the early days of, you know, rock radio, they talked about black music crossing over. And that was, that was, you know, the genius of Barry Gordy and Motown because Motown 
did break that wall largely. It crossed over, um, but subsequent artists uh, that were not in that stable had a much harder time doing that. But even Stevie, Stevie Wonder, the way he made the crossover was he opened for the Rolling Stones. I, I saw. He, yeah, and actually, he was better. Better than the than Rolling, the Rolling Stones. Stones. You everybody, saw that concert, Derek? Yeah, everybody's going, going. Why is Stevie Wonder <laughs> opening for the Rolling Stones? My my first job in Chicago was as an Andy Frayn usher at the age of sixteen, and uh, one of the shows I remember was Stevie Wonder opening for the Rolling Stones at. The International Amphitheater. Was it the amphitheater at the stadium? Yes, it was at the amphitheater. Wow. Um, home of roller derby, wrestling, and Chicago uh, Bulls for a couple of years. The uh, livestock ex- expedition, which you could smell uh, whenever you went in that building. But, and um, the Chicago Auto Show. And the Chicago Auto Show. And of course, it was the convention center before McCormick Place and after the, the first McCormick Place burned down. But I, I was at yes, I was at I was wow. at one of. The- I, I'm pretty sure that concert was at Chicago Stadium. We're gonna make a friendly bet, uh, and then uh, if you are correct, I will. Uh, well, my you. agent may have the location uh, wrong, but I I was there. Oh no, I believe you were there. Uh, I, uh, it's funny. I have a memory of the Chicago Stadium, and I wanted to go to the concert, and I didn't. I was very envious. But it was a brilliant move by uh, Stevie Wonder. And I'll tell you why, Derek and Monroe, because right now, to this day, okay, so after that, uh, he did that concert. I think that concert was, that tour was in 72, around there. And then he came out, of course, with Inner Visions uh, and uh, Fulfilling His First Finale, all these albums, uh, Songs in the Key of Life. Right now, if you listen to, uh, what do they call it? Um, like I call it uh, Geezer Rock and Roll those stations that play the the hard rock music from the seventies, one of the few black artists that they will play is Stevie wonder. And I'm convinced it's because he did that tour with the stones, introduced his music to a lot of, uh, white pe- baby boomers and they went for it. And that's why it's played, uh, to this day. Like you'll hear a Stevie wonder song at WXRT every now and then when they're playing an old song, you're not going to hear the Isley brothers. Do you follow me, Monroe? Because uh, even though the Isley Brothers covered a lot of great rock songs, um, yeah, Ray, Ray, Ray Charles uh, uh, crossed over before then, but that's because he did um, um, what I say um, country. He did a country song. All right, let's let's move to politics. Uh, people uh, lo- love to hear uh, what Monroe has to say about uh, Trump. Uh, and Derek Blakely, uh, you're going to be uh, thrown into the mix as well. I sent Derek this column today, Monroe, uh, in the New York Times. I urge people to read it if you can. Michelle Cottle is her name. She's an editorial writer for the New York Times, and she wrote about Ginny Thomas. And Monroe, I'm going to read you the opening lead, uh, uh, the opening, I should say, uh, as redundant to say opening lead, and then uh, you take it away, and then Derek weigh in. I've never seen uh, a force like Ginny Thomas in my entire life. And here's the lead. Uh, 
Ginny Thomas has become a problem. You don't have to be a left-wing, anti-Trump minion of the deep state to think it's a bad look for American democracy to have the wife of a Supreme Court justice implicated in a multi-tentacled scheme to overturn a free and fair presidential election. But that is where this political moment finds us. I could not agree more with that opening line from Michelle Cottle. Monroe Anderson, your response. Uh, There are those who are calling for uh, the Supreme Court justice, her husband, to um, recuse himself from cases that has anything to do with that. Personally, I think he should be impeached and kicked off the court. But that's just me. Wow. Okay. Uh, you got a lot of impeachment going on here, Monroe. You were for both Trump I impeachments. Know. Yes. <laughs> Throw the bums out. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of them. All right. Before it's I. Like, yeah. they're, they're, um, um, uh, David Korn has a book now that's out about Republicans. And he traces a history back. Uh, 50 years or more, his book does, on the various attempts, anti-democratic forays they've made. And when they weren't themselves, the politicians themselves um, doing this, then they were standing by and not saying anything and letting it be, be done. All right. Uh, before I uh, ask Derek to weigh in with his thoughts, why specifically do you think Clarence Thomas should be impeached? Because he voted, I mean, he, he, first of all, he has not been objective or fair. But with this situation with his wife, he's the only one, only one on the court, all the right wingers you got there, who says, no, we shouldn't look into, we shouldn't have the uh, January 6th committee investigation. And that was self-interest, although he claims, they claim that they don't discuss Supreme Court business, which is a bold-faced lie, because on the other hand, they talk about being best friends. And so if they're best friends and they don't discuss his reason for being, then either they really aren't best friends or they're lying about what they discuss. All right. But you can't have it both ways. Uh, Derek, your thoughts. Do you think, do you agree with Monroe that Clarence Thomas should be impeached? Clarence Thomas is uh, an odious figure who did not deserve to be appointed to the Supreme Court when he was. He was the least qualified Supreme Court nominee possibly uh, in the last hundred years. Although, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a judicial background to be appointed to the Supreme Court historically. Right. Now, um, the, the three, any of the three of us could be appointed to the Supreme Court. Exactly. You, yeah. don't, be, you don't even need to be an attorney, actually. Um, but um, still, when you look at, at uh, relative qualifications, his came in uh, very light. And um, it was an appointment that... Uh, uh, it, that was scandalous, especially seeing that he was replacing Thurgood Marshall um, on the court. Um, his 
opinions have not just been conservative, uh, they have been arch conservative, uh, they have been reactionary. Um, it's like he's trying to be the whitest white conservative on the court. He's probably trying to get, get Jenny's um, parents to like him, relatives to like him, but he, <laughs> approve of the marriage. Yeah, right. Um, and the the issue with Jenny Thomas, I, I don't know if it's impeachable. I mean, look, everybody who hates uh, right-wing Republicans wants them all re- impeached, and everybody who all the Republicans who like hate left-wing Democrats are always calling for impeachment. It's kind of a like, yeah, let's impeach him. Um, but it, you know, it is concerning, uh, the depth of her involvement in the January 6th election denial schemes. It's concerning that anybody, um, related to the functioning of democracy in America, um, you know, has a wife or close relative who who is involved in the perversion of the Constitution. Supreme Court is supposed to uphold the Constitution. Um, you know, um, so that whole dark day, uh, the episode, uh, uh, the, the shenanigans around it, uh, now we found out, you know, last week, uh, that there was a phone call made from inside the White House to one of the rioters who was outside the White House. Maybe you talked about that already. No, we haven't got to that. Um, That's next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all it's all very, very concerning. And um, for those who thought, and I don't think there's many of your listeners, but for those who thought that the committee was either uh, a waste of time or unnecessary, um, just the Jenny Thomas regu- revelations alone and this phone call business um, show how essential and how necessary the committee was and still is because their work isn't finished. Yeah, it, it's not finished. And let's get to the impeachment stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of with you, uh, Derek, on the impeachment. I think it's overused. Uh, and uh, Monroe, I'm going to uh, tell you something uh, that I think time will prove. I hope it doesn't. But if the Republicans win uh, in November and take back Congress, I don't. Uh, I think they can. I still think they're going to take back Congress in November. There will be impeachment hearings on Joe Biden, and it will be the most manufactured BS uh, reasons in the world. And in a weird way, I welcome them. Because let's put our cards on the table, Republicans, see what you're all about. See what you didn't vote for the impeachment of Trump when they had the goods on them. Let's see what kind of manufactured BS you come up with to justify impeaching uh, Joe Biden. So I I'm with Derek on this one. I believe that we've gone to the impeachment well too often as much as I disdain. I really do not like. Clarence Thomas as no, a Supreme Court justice. Go ahead. Clarence, okay. Okay. Let me. The difference with Clarence against all the other right wing Supreme Court people is that he has obviously been playing politics. He's not been judicial. 
He's not been fair and bare, balanced or, or blind, justice is blind, all that stuff. He has been a political operative from day one on every issue. And that's why I say um, if, if the Supreme Court is supposed to be one thing, and he's the opposite of that, get rid of him. But not because um, of politics or uh, alone, or, or but he's not doing what the court is supposed to do and why these guys have a lifetime job because it's supposed to be removed from politics. That's why they give them a lifetime. Once you get there, you're there. So you are influenced by politics. And he has shown time and time and time and time again that he's playing politics on the court. I don't know. I don't know if that's good enough to kick him off the court. What do you think, Derek? You know, the, the question is whether, you know, it would that would be seen as a democratic effort, a partisan effort. Um, and um, I, I don't know if, you know, in the long run that it would be worth it would be worth it. Or if you would accomplish the objective um, and and, you know, I think I think Democrats have bigger fish to fry. Um, by the way, Mr. Ben Jaworski, excuse me, Miss mangling your last name. A little quick internet research here shows that on June 19th and 20th of 1972, it was the Rolling Stones and Stevie Wonder at the International uh, Amphitheater. <laughs> you know, I was wondering what he was clicking that computer for. You know what, Monroe? I want another lunch. Yeah, Derek Blakely lives in Evanston, my hometown. I went to Evanston High School. Yes, I did. I graduated from Evanston High School. One year after that Rolling Stone Stevie Wonder concert, uh, I sit corrected. So you get to pick the restaurant in Evanston, uh, and I'll bring Monroe. We'll all go dine, okay? <laughs> you, you, you know how I, how I book esteemed journalists like, <laughs> <laughs> like Derek on your show? I tell them, come on the show, do the podcast. He's going to challenge you to a lunch, so you'll get a free lunch out of it. I'm always wrong. <laughs> great, a great hot article. Three shows in two days at the International Amphitheater with Stevie Wonder as the opening act. Wow. I sit corrected. Friends songs from the month old Exile on Main Street. Do they mention uh, a young Andy Frayne Usher named Derek Blakely uh, taking no, tickets? No. Man, you blew the story, Greg Cott. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. You missed the lead. Okay. It should have been the lead. Ah, uh, sick correct. I'm going to pick the restaurant at Evanston. Okay. I know Evanston restaurants. So uh, I'll pick the restaurant. Uh, damn, I hate when I lose. Uh, I'll, I'll say this about what Thurgood Marshall, the most cynical act in my lifetime of politics. And I've seen a lot of cynical acts. And I, I've been around a long time, Derek and Monroe, as you know. George Bush selecting Clarence Thomas to replace Thurgood Marshall because the, the notion is it was a black man, so you have to replace him with another black man, and it doesn't matter who the black man is. You could take any black man. It's good enough. That is the most cynical act from a party that says they're against affirmative action, Derek from a party that says, 
Oh, we believe in a meritocracy. Everybody's equal. We all start at the same line and the race and the fastest runner wins. And that's just the way it goes. <laughs> just, you just like you, you just randomly pick. No, well, it wasn't random because they had to take a guy who was conservative and, and would do whatever they want. But that was an act of just cynicism, Derek. And I am still not over it. It happened in 1991. That's 30 years ago. I am still not over that. I, cause I, the, just the arrogance and the contempt that they displayed toward all of civil rights. You get what I'm saying? No, I, I, I completely get what you're saying. Um, I, I don't, I think it was cynical. I don't know if even they knew how far uh, to the right that Clarence Thomas would be. Um, you know, um, Bush also appointed another justice um, a guy from New Hampshire. What, what Souter, was his name? David Souter. Yeah, Souter. Uh, he thought he was going to be conservative. He turned out to be a liberal or uh, allied himself with the liberal wing and um, eventually, uh, you know, retired from the court uh, as opposed to dying on the bench. Um, so, you know, sometimes you don't exactly know what you're getting. Um, I don't know that Bush knew that Clarence Thomas was, as I said, uh, you know, uh, trying to be uh, to the right of Attila the Hun. <laughs> but uh, uh, he certainly turned out that be it, uh, to be, and unfortunately, he shows no signs of wanting to retire. But, but uh, I'll... I'll... Say one other uh, quote in this story, and we'll move on from Ginny Thomas. But Monroe and Derek, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, so, again, this is Michelle Cottle's essay in today's New York Times. Uh, and when I read this paragraph, it made me think of power couples here in the city of Chicago. Uh, and uh, so, here we go. Uh, if most of America has come around to two un income households, Washington is overrun with bona fide power couples and has fashioned its own set of rules, official and unofficial for dealing with them. Among these, it is bad form to suggest that a spouse should defer to his or her partner's career other than what explicitly required, of course. Now, I know exactly what she's getting at there. In other words, if Democrats are to make an issue out of Ginny Thomas being um, a nutcase, a member of the lunatic fringe of MAGA that believes an election which was not stolen was actually stolen and should be then overturned by throwing out all the black votes in Milwaukee, Detroit, uh, in uh, Florida, Georgia, et cetera, and so forth, Atlanta, which is where what the Republicans wanted to do. If she believes that, uh, it's not fair to criticize her because that would be anti-feminist because as a woman, she's allowed to have her own beliefs independent of her husband. I know that argument is coming uh, if uh, the Democrats push on this issue. Uh, Monroe, I'd love to get your thoughts uh, on that argument and then uh, Derek, your thoughts as well. Go ahead, Monroe. Back in the, I want to say 80s, it may have been the 90s, but the 80s, Jesse Jackson objected to applying affirmative action to white women, making them part of the, the thing. And his argument was 
that um, they had an advantage over black folks in particular because they slept with the power elite. They slept with the man who was was defining what should happen and not happen. And uh, because they share the same bed, the same pillows, then um, they had a, a, an advantage that they should not have. And I look at it that way with her. I mean, she, they're, 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 they've, they're best friends. They're sleeping together. And so what she says has far more influence than um, Karen or uh, Jenny with the good hair. <laughs> Derek, your thoughts? <laughs> Jenny with the good hair. Um, well, I, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't, um, if the Democrats choose to go after this issue, I wouldn't be worried about uh, that as a stumbling block. Because I, again, I think um, the actions have been so brazen and so dangerous that um, um, I, I wouldn't worry about criticism uh, because you know you're dealing with a uh, you know a female spouse. Um, look, I think you it's understood if you're a Supreme Court justice uh, and you're married to one whether you're a man or a woman, there are some limits on the extent of your political activities, your political pronouncements, uh, especially when they um, uh, are germane to issues the court is considering or, or, or taking under advisement. Um, there are limits because you put your uh, spouse's uh, credibility in, in danger. And um, I, I think that should be recognized. I mean, whether we've got enough female members of the court now, whether that should be recognized, whether you're a man or a woman married to uh, someone who holds that position. Yeah. No, I, I've heard the argument uh, here in Chicago many times with the uh, power couples, particularly I'm thinking of right yeah, now. Yeah. And, and Burke and Ed Burke. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, Ann and Ed Burke. I heard it with uh, Anna Valencia that you know her campaign got trashed and 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 uh, and her. <laughs> I've heard some defenders say, "Well, she was an innocent victim because she didn't know what her husband was doing," um, but of course she was sending. Um, she signed a uh, a campaign. Uh, she she signed a document. Uh, uh, Throwing him, throwing him some business on her official stationery, which uh, was um, just like country dumb. Um, and her campaign blew up, and she was no longer the uh, fair-haired child. And uh, she, she was saying it was only because she was a woman. And, and no, no, no. That saw cuts both ways, Anna. Yeah, let's, and let's go back to Jenny for a minute. The, the, the tip, the clue to all this is he voted against the investigation. 
of the January 6th investigation going into play. He voted against everybody else there. Sure, you know, this would be the thing to do. He knew. And he did, you know, if, if he was doing anything as he was supposed to do, he would have recused himself. Just saying that um, my, my, um, my wife is active in this. I can't be fair. So I, I'm not going to vote one way or the other. And it would have been a, an eight to nothing vote. And that, that would have let him off the hook. But he didn't do that. Yeah, you're right. He acted. Yeah, I, I'm with you 100 percent on that, Monroe. You're absolutely correct, uh, and you can't have it uh, both ways. Anna Valencia, by the way, for folks just keeping track, she's a city clerk here in the city of Chicago. She unsuccessfully ran uh, in last March Secretary of State primary, uh, and uh, that her husband's business dealings absolutely were a credible issue in that race. All right, uh, Derek, I sent this to you. This uh, Monroe, I sent it to you as well, but I don't think you uh, had a chance to read it. Uh, this story broke uh, right before I came on the air. I want to thank uh, listener Frank for sending it to me. Uh, and this gets into the issue of Republican counterattacks to things that Democrats do and the and the strategies Republicans will employ um, to uh, keep their voters angry at Democrats. Uh, so Eric Adams, the uh, mayor of New York City, uh, is getting ripped uh, on uh, social media. Monroe, I don't know if you've seen this one that broke. I sent it to him, Derek, as I said. Uh, he's getting ripped on social media because he made some comments regarding Kansas. Uh, and he gets Kansas, he was mocking Kansas uh, uh, for having no brand. And that's his quote, no brand, uh, as opposed to New York City, which has a brand name, which is a brand. Like people would want to come to New York uh, as. Uh, the critics have pointed out New York's population fell in the last census. Kansas ro rose. So apparently he's not support, supported on that front as well. Uh, it struck me as like a golden opportunity for uh, Republicans to rip Dems as elitists and snobs. And they have gone full force into this. I'd love to get your thoughts, Derek Blakely and then Monroe. Uh, is Eric Adams guilty of being an elitist snob for saying Kansas has no brand? Well, you know, reading it, it struck me as a throwaway line um, where he was kind of beating his chest about New York more than the trash in Kansas. I mean, he could sit in Nebraska, Iowa, you know. Um, and I don't think, you know, I don't think it will have any long-term lasting effect um it might if if he were running if he were a national candidate running for a national audience and it does it does um echo the attitudes that republicans said democrats had particularly during the clinton campaign i think that's where this this kind of originated um but, you know, again, in this context, it just sounds like a a throwaway line that, you know, somebody's trying to make hay over. But um, I, I don't I don't think um, I don't think it's going to stick. Um, you know, Democrats. Um, I don't think Democrats are elitist, but obviously they're you know, the population base 
Uh, their voting base lies along the coast. Um, and in some, uh, some uh, bigger cities like Chicago that aren't, that aren't on the coast. But basically, um, if you look at a map of their political strength, it's mostly along the coast in the upper Midwest. Um, so, but it's not, it's not politically smart to disparage voters in the middle of the country, even if you're not going to get their votes. Yeah. Not politically smart. That is, uh, that is absolutely the case. Monroe, your thoughts. Okay. My thoughts are that he was wrong, that Kansas does have a brand. Uh, Just think Wizard of Oz. You're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, It's true. That's right. When I was at the the Tribune in, I, I forget the year, but it was the... If you can do the math, I figured out. But it was, it was the 50th anniversary of the Board of Education, Brown versus Board of Education. And I, I went to Kansas to interview um, Brown. And I stayed there and I wanted a drink. You couldn't buy a drink in Kansas back then. It's changed since then. But you couldn't buy a drink uh, because it was a dry state in the 90s. And so, in the 80s, sorry, in the 80s. So, what I... They just knew you were coming and you would drink them dry. <laughs> well, at least they didn't hide all their women. If they would have, you were coming. <laughs> But anyway, you had to join a private club. <laughs> yeah. To have a drink. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that was an affectation that they went through. You had to sign a card or something. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So, no, Kansas has a brand. It's not the sort of brand they want to brag about. That's the difference. Well, don't, don't forget the, the brand that the, uh, you know, Kansas also gave uh, the pro-life forces a victory, an unexpected victory. And um, that is something that uh, Democrats have been looking at and examining. And, and uh, um, of course, in general, using against Republicans. But um, so maybe they are more discerning than Eric Adams. Well, would have. well I, first of all, I would say this to Monroe's point. Kansas is not Kansas anymore. As that uh, vote showed, we talked about that a lot on the show, Derek. Uh, and secondly, my advice to Eric Adams is uh, to embrace it and like make it get a have some excuse to go to Kansas and just hug people in Kansas and just love it out and just embrace this moment uh, and use it to your advantage. That would be my advice to Eric Adams. Not that he would ever follow any advice I would offer. Uh, and finally, I got to say this. Now I'm. I'm Republicans are pieces of work because I've been the last few months. All I've been hearing out of Derek Bay, uh, Derek, Dare, I've DB, uh, Derek Bailey in his gubernatorial campaign. He's running as a MAGA man against JP Pritzker is how Chicago is a hellhole. Okay. So Republicans are free to call Chicago a hellhole. They talk about everything bad that ever happens in the city of Chicago. You say one thing that's not even really that critical about Kansas, more in passing joke, and everybody's condemning you. 
their biggest crybabies, Monroe Anderson, they could throw a punch, but they can't take a punch. They'll never be a champion boxer because you can't take a punch. Right. You know, and uh, I, and then all this other thing that Darren Bailey said, I don't know if you saw the latest, that he lives, he knows what it's like in the inner city. I am not making this up, Monroe Anderson and Derek Blakely. He said he knows what it's like in the inner city because he's been staying uh, at the John Hancock building in the inner city of Chicago. I'm like, what? Yeah. Well, I I think he was speaking location. (laughs) It is in the city. Yeah. But he put in or yeah, it is in the city. Well it is. Right. It is in the city. Uh, it's in right 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 across the street from the gold coast. Yeah. (laughs) So apparently it's okay for Republicans to trash Chicago, but God forbid Eric Adams say anything about Kansas which isn't even Kansas anymore. All right. Uh, let's uh, close with some Chicago politics. Love to get your thoughts uh, about this story that I opened my show talking about. It's on the front page of the Sun-Times. Uh, one of those, can't believe I'm in Chicago anymore, uh, Derek Blakely. Uh, and um, Teresa Ma, the state rep uh, from the near south side, uh, Chinatown community, uh, pull the plug says she's going to pull the plug on a $50 million uh, state assistance uh, to the city of Chicago, the Board of Education, to build a new high school in the South Loop. Uh, She had, she said, supported that uh, high school, but that she'd been listening to critics uh, who said that the high school should not be built on CHA-owned land, on land that was supposed to be set aside uh, for public housing. And she does not believe that uh, the city of Chicago, the Board of Education, have been acting in good faith. Uh, And so until things turn around, she's going to use her influence uh, to uh, have the J.B. Pritzker administration pull back that $50 million, and they will not, uh, if that's the case, be able to build the high school. I had many thoughts on this. Uh, One, I applauded her. This is me speaking. I applauded her independence and uh, standing up for what she believes in, even in the face of a mayor, a mayor who's not afraid uh, to p- counterpunch. Uh, but then I also had the thought that, my goodness, things have really changed in the city of Chicago. Uh, that's why I said it's not Chicago anymore, because I cannot imagine a state rep openly defying uh, a plan put forth by Mayor Richard M. Daley, who ruled in the 90s and into the O's, or Mayor Rahm Emanuel, at least in his first term. So uh, what's your thoughts, Derek Blakely and then Monroe? Could you imagine a state rep standing up to Richard M. Daley or Rahm Emanuel in this way? Well, um, no, particularly with uh, uh, Richard J. Daley, less with Richard M. Daley, um, perhaps with Rahm Emanuel. Um, and, you know, you'd also have to know where Mike Madigan stood on, <laughs> on that issue because really defying him would have been the coup de grace uh, for any state representative. Um, this is a really tricky issue. Um, the Chinatown community for a long time has wanted a high school that they felt they could send their kids to. Because they aren't going to send them to the Sable, and they're not going to send them to Tilden, and they're not going to send them to uh, Dunbar, which are the, the, the closest high schools. And um, 
But I think Teresa Ma, it, I went to Hales Franciscan High School at 49th and Cottage, and there were some Catholic kids from Chinatown who were my classmates uh, in what was a, a black Catholic high school. Um, they had a, a small number of Chinese kids there. So um, I, I know that's been a long time issue for the Chinatown community. Um, she, Teresa Ma must feel that um, there'd be enough blowback um, for building on this site uh, that she can't go through with it. So I, I applaud her for her independence. Um, but I also, you know, look, CHA tore down a lot of low-income housing uh, during the daily years. Uh, Daly went to George Bush and said, I want to do this. Will you back me on it? And he got Bush's approval to do it. Stateway Gardens, Robert Taylor Homes, Abla, all that. They called it the plan for confirmation. Transformation. It, transformation. Um, but they they made a bargain, they made a deal that they know they couldn't fulfill, which was it was like the you know the, the you know the 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 right of return that they were going to guarantee these low income uh, housing residents, uh, that they could, uh, return to these newly rebuilt properties, which they couldn't do because they weren't going to build as many units as they were tearing down in the first place, even on paper. So, you know, and this has become like, um, like an an issue, like you deal with, uh, almost like you deal with, uh, you know, Native American tribes. This this land is set aside. It's sacrosanct now, and nothing can be built on it. But you know, even if you build on it, you're not going to build enough units to rehouse the people who were there. Many of people who have moved to the suburbs, some who have died. Now there's a long, still long, long, long waiting list. But in terms of rehousing the original residents, keeping that promise, um, that's not going to happen. Everybody that left is not coming back. And for this land to lay fallow and not be used for anything is just, it's not an acknowledgement of reality. Now, the high school there has been, the, the high school there, high school buildings there have been a political uh nightmare for years the 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 school that with the elementary school that was built um to serve the south loop in those uh 80s developments in dearborn park that became a political football and then they they talked about trying to turn the national teachers uh academy or whatever they called it um uh into a uh into a high school um to serve this, this same area. Um, so I think there probably needs to be a high school built somewhere. If they can find a better place to build it, a less politically sensitive place to build it, um, fine. But they also, I think there also needs to be an acknowledgement that this land can't, uh, it, it isn't, shouldn't lie fallow forever. 
And if it if it serves a good purpose as a school, um, and it's not going to be used to build housing uh, as it as it perhaps should be, I, I don't know. It seems like it seems like um, um, I, I don't know. Let me put it this way: I don't know that not building the school there means that there is going to be housing built there. If I could say that you know, not building the school there will result in the building of low-income housing there. I, it's an easy, it's an easy, it's an easy box to check. But, you know, that's not the same thing. They're different pots of money, different political uh, machinations. Monroe, your thoughts? Um, I think it was brave on uh, Ma's behalf to say, no, we're not going to put the school there because it, it, the Chinese community has been dying for their own school. Everybody else has one, yeah, uh, several. And uh, so as a politician, that was very brave. Um, I think, you know, you look at it and you wonder why would she do this? Well, one reason why she probably did it is because there is also a serious need for low-income housing in the Chinese community. Uh, 20 years ago, I had a Chinese friend uh, who told me that uh, from, from, from outwardly, it looks like everything is good in Chinatown, but the reality is that you will find um, nine or 10 people, Chinese, bunking in a one-bedroom apartment in Chinatown because there's no housing that they can afford. They, they've come over either legally or illegally. They're, they're here, and there's no place for them to stay. So they need the high school, but they also need the low-income housing there. Uh, compounding that is that Chinatown is in an ideal location for uh, the... Um, gentrification of Chicago. Uh, Bill Ware, who was Harold Washington's chief of staff, uh, told me back in that day uh, that Chicago is the only city in the world that has poor people living on its most valuable land. Nobody else here along the lakefront. No, No other city has that. Uh, so it's 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 complicated, but I I think they should um, they should personally. This is just Monroe Anderson, but I think they should build a low income housing there, put the um, high school where they want to move it, which is still close enough where it will work, and be done with it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, I moved to Chicago in '81, uh, Derek Monroe, and um, it seems from the moment I moved here. Uh, to Monroe's point, the city of Chicago has been trying to figure out a way to get poor people off of valuable real estate. And I've watched it now for how many years is that, Derek? 40 years. For 40 years, they've been figure, trying to figure out. And if they got to say, oh, yeah, we'll bring you back, they'll say, oh, yeah, we'll bring you back. But it's kind of like a 40-acre and a mule promise. It's a promise they're never going to deliver on. And uh, it's very cynical. Not as cynical as appointing Clarence Thomas to replace uh, Thurgood Marshall, but in sort of the same general category, Derek Blakely, a very cynical 
uh, promise that you know you're not going to keep because you have no intention of keeping it when you make the promise. Because the whole point of the plan is to move the poor people off the valuable land. Just like Monroe said, Bill Ware told him, and Bill Ware was absolutely correct back in the 1980s when he said that. That said, Derek Blakely, you live at Evanston, you know what I'm about to say is true. Integration is hard. And I'm not just talking about racial integration. I'm talking about economic integration. So getting poor people and middle class and upper class people in the same school building and taking care of all the situations that arise from that, uh, and particularly when you add a racial mix or an ethnic mix to it, that's hard to do. It, it's you got to be proactive. You have to have staff that's smart and sensitive and patient. And it costs money, Derek Monroe. Nobody wants to spend money on integration. You show me somewhere in the city of Chicago where they want to spend money cultivating Im- integration, cultivating like black people getting along with white people and Asian people and Hispanic people. I haven't seen that in Chicago since the days of the magnet schools, which they only came up with, uh, Derek Blakely, you know this, because they didn't want to do forced busing. So I know what goes on at Evanston, the struggles they have in Evanston, with trying to have a healthy high school where everybody gets along, more or less. They're, a little, they're more successful than Chicago, but they got their problems. So I'm just saying that integration, to your point, Derek, you, you, that, that riff you did was really good about DuSable, Dunbar, and Tilden, and the, the people from Chinatown aren't going to send their kids to those schools. I know exactly what you're saying when you said it. Yeah, yeah Grayson Mitchell, during um, Richie Daly's reign, was uh, put on this, this committee that was supposed to find places where they could... Um, Poor people could live when they, as they were tearing down the project, the housing projects, and uh, Namby came into play right, right away on that. Not in my backyard, and he said he didn't realize how difficult it was to do, and and, and that wasn't that wasn't race based Namby. Right. That was black people saying, "Don't be sending these project people." Exactly. Exactly. And you still you will still hear people say that the deterioration of the middle class South Side neighborhoods was partially caused by the flood of people out of the projects. Although most of the people out of the projects actually wound up in uh, the 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 uh, black suburbs of the uh, of the far South Side and Gary. And Gary. I'm the Gary, yeah, right. And, and and this will blow your mind, guys. Iowa. Minnesota. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, exactly. unbelievable. Uh, my oldest daughter went to the University of Iowa and uh, worked for the Obama campaign. I'll never forget this, Monroe. I know I've told Monroe this, Derek. I never told you this. And so I went down to help her, uh, you know, dad helping his daughter. And they sent me out to go door knocking. I'm like, I couldn't believe how many people I met who had grown up in like Cabrini Green or Robert Taylor Holmes somehow or other found their way to Iowa City. Uh, so section eight. What's that? Section eight. Yeah, section eight. 
Uh, and uh, oh, Derek's looking something up. He's going to prove me wrong. No, no, no. I'm just trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to uh, plug in my phone. He, he, he already won one bet. He wants to win another. Uh, all right. Uh, we'll close with this. Uh, I told Monroe this. I didn't tell Derek this. Derek, I, I once sat in front of uh, you at a football game uh, at Evanston High School. And uh, that's how I knew you from Evanston. And um, your son, I believe it was your son, was playing football for Evanston High School. Uh, no, my son played basketball for Evanston High School. Oh, well, then I don't know why you were at this football game, but you were at a football game uh, for an Evanston High School. And I was sitting with friends of mine whose son did play for the Evanston High School football team. Uh, shout out to uh, Edwin and Evelis Rivera Thompson, their son Sergio. And oh, yeah, I, of course. I, I was there because um, um, I worked with uh, Evelis at uh, NBC. Okay, that's why you were at that game. So I'll never forget that when that game ended, uh, Sergio, by the way, is a, is a regular on the show, Derek, he's got his own podcast career. He's very successful. Yes. Excellent on a microphone. Uh, and, um, we talk sports and politics, but what I remember so clearly about that, I thought your son was playing, but I didn't realize you were there because you were friends with, uh, uh, Edwin and Evelis. Uh, but I just remember the relief when the game was over, Evelis just said, Thank God, because that was the final game of the year, the final game of Sergio's high school career, the final time she'd have to sit through a high school game and live in fear that her son would get hurt. And I was like, yeah, I could feel that. I could feel that. Uh, so uh, anyway, I thought your son played uh, football. That's why you're at the game, but I had, to, I had the story. No, no, no. He, he threatened to uh, go out for the football team because he was you know about 6'5", 6'6". And uh, they probably could have used him, but uh, – uh, he decided he, that you know you can actually smart. get hurt playing he's, football. He's very so, smart, uh, also. So yeah, so <laughs> so basketball, so he football, basketball, football. He confined his uh, athletic uh, athletic feats to the uh, to the hardwood. Uh, well, that's uh, just as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, I um. All right, very good, uh, Derek. Thank you very much. Uh, thank goodness I didn't make that a bet. Because I would have owed him another. Well, can you imagine me and Monroe? No, no, no. Your son played football. <laughs> Telling the dad. It's something I would do in my utter weirdness. Uh, so I uh, I owe Derek Blakely lunch, ladies and gentlemen, at the restaurant of my choice uh, in Evanston. Uh, and uh, I'll bring uh, Monroe along. We'll have a great time. Uh, oh, look forward to yes, it. Yes. Uh, uh, but you're not allowed to get the steak. Just kidding. All right. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say that. All right, Derek Blakely, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And Monroe, of course, every Wednesday in the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, there, we didn't talk January 6th insurrection hearings, folks. I know some of you wanted to hear Monroe on it, but the meeting was canceled today. Or excuse me, the, the, the hearing was canceled today. And we'll probably be postponed. Yeah. Not postponed. Not canceled. Postponed. My bad. Postponed. Yeah. Right. It will happen. It will happen. And we'll be talking yeah. about it. Trust me. I know a lot of people tune in just to hear Monroe on the uh, January 6th insurrection stuff. Uh, Guys, I got to go. All right. Go. Take care.